Well, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my great pleasure to begin our new school year speaker series with someone um, who is always well worth listening to. Um, all of you, I'm sure, are already familiar with uh, Dana uh, Priest, who is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner and a superb investigative reporter. I think if there may be some opportunity to sit a little in here, but I'm, I'm sorry that we don't have, we could not get a larger room for today, so I'm sorry that some of you are backed up out there. Um, in any event, Dana has been covering or uncovering secrets for a long time in a very distinguished career at the Washington Post. Uh, she is today going to be talking about secrecy, and we were chatting just before this about the um, piece in the New York Times on the op-ed page today by Kurt Eichenwald about how the Bush administration kept secret the warnings, repeated warnings, that were given to the Bush administration about al-Qaeda in the days and even months before 9-11, uh, and they kept this secret from the commission that was examining what happened, apparently. Uh, it really makes the point about secrecy and about the fact of it and the difficulty of finding out uh, what the truth is and how much of an obligation to the public journalism has and the, and the institutions of government and other people in power have to that. Uh, Dana is going to pre or preach. Not <laughs> preaching. <laughs> <laughs> Dana is going to speak for about 15 minutes, and then we will uh, have uh, uh, an exchange. Dana, welcome. Very glad to have you. Thank you. I might do a little preaching at the end, but I'm going to start out by just um, uh, setting a little context. So the talk is the cost of secrecy and what we've learned both as the press and the government uh, since 9-11. And um, so first I wanted to start off with a, just a little context to remind everybody, you know, what is supposed to be secret? And so something that's secret is supposed to be that which, is, if it were revealed, it would do damage to the national security. So it's not politically embarrassing. That's not supposed to be secret. Um, things like, you know, the obvious sources and methods, things that would prevent the government from uh, finding out things and doing things that it thinks necessary, and, and really not, not anything else. Um, so why did the, uh, why did there grow up after 9-11 so much secrecy? And I would argue that the, the first reason is, is really the result of a, almost a bureaucratic that understates it. Um, uh, fight between DOD, the Defense Department, and the CIA over who's going to react first to 9-11. So as you've all read, um, when the President said, you know, what are we going to do and who's going to go in, uh, Hugh Shelton, who was then the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, well, we don't really have a plan, you know, we can, we have, we can bomb more bases uh, or more training sites, um, but you know, we don't have a plan to get boots on the ground in Afghanistan and do something uh, about about al-Qaeda. But the CIA said, well, we have a plan. And uh, and also the CIA was um, is much more nimble, um, especially back then when the when DOD was still very slow moving to, to uh, generalize. 
Uh, and so the CIA kind of really won the day. They could get in with small numbers. They could, um, you know, dispense a lot of money to get uh, sources. They already had sources because they were working with the Northern Alliance. And uh, it, it was a fight that, of course, Rumsfeld would not have liked to lose. Uh, so you know that it wasn't just um, because they thought the CIA would do a better job because of what it is. In fact, it had a very small paramilitary outfit at the time. So it really was that they had the ability to get on the ground fast and to be more flexible versus what DOD had. And I'll come back to that later. Um, so that meant, since it was the CIA, and what they do is when they go to other countries that don't ask them to come in, is by nature covert. And if something is covert, it gets, you know, to be secret very quickly. <laughs> um, so you, so right from the get-go, you have the agency that's doing the most uh, under covert action, which the president signs a finding that that uh, eventually allows just a whole field of of uh, endeavors. In fact, the, becomes the largest covert action program in the history of the agency, even you know larger. Many would argue than the height of the Cold War, and sets in place a whole regime of secret things from, um, and, and not just sort of things that would be equivalent to military operations, you know, going somewhere, finding the enemy and destroying or otherwise, you know, doing some capturing, but um, another set of things that had not been done in the CIA's history uh, ever, um, beginning with renditions that are different from the renditions during the Clinton administration, where are you going to put these people? developing secret prisons in order to put them there, what are you going to do with them, developing really on the run a whole different sort of uh, mechanism and practices and then legal authorities to work within this gigantic blossoming covert action um, to the point where you see late, we see later that the legal interpretations of what could be done vis-a-vis uh, -vis the famous OLC, Office of Legal Counsel memo, uh, were very unconventional interpretation of the laws. So you go from, so you, you get into eventually, uh, you, you start out in a very uh, unconventional path using methods that, um, you know, nobody had really used before and eventually even affecting the laws that, that come to govern uh, what's being done. Um, on the contrary, what uh, what you have at the um, what you could have had at the if if the military had been prepared to do something like this would be uh, much more within the framework of what we understand. You know our laws to have been, and that would have included, you know, a military operation that eventually puts people into some sort of understood custody with rules that already exist, and maybe that framework would have broadened, but it still would have been a framework that we're all familiar with, um, and that would eventually probably have included the FBI interrogating um, prisoners using methods that they have used very successfully in the past on criminals, but also within the legal framework that we all had understood for so long. And eventually, probably, uh, 
uh, terrorists would have been brought to court, some kind of court. Maybe there would have been developed a military tribunals that would have better fit the type of enemy that this was. But instead, again, everything was done in the covert setting and not in a military setting that could have been adjusted to better fit the, the occasion. So back to secrecy, all this means that now everything that is happening in counterterrorism gets to be secret. And now I'll come to the, to the media part. Uh, what that means for us is, you know, at that moment, uh, when, when you decided you wanted to cover counterterrorism, you, know, you immediately go into the secret realm. You immediately have to cross into, you know, what is classified because everything having to do with um, this, these operations was classified. So even if you wanted to ask yourself the, the questions that every DOD reporter would ask when the military undertakes a operation or even plans to undertake or is we're debating whether they're going to undertake an operation is, you know, are the, are the, is the operation going to reach your goal? Are the tactics that are going to be used going to reach your strategic goal? How are they doing, you know, during a war? Are they, uh, you know, not, the plan doesn't survive the first contact, but is something, you know, is the plan uh, adjusting correctly, um, taking new uh, things into account? But you can't do that if everything is secret because, so there's no public pressure, there's no, even uh, much of a government-wide pressure to figure out whether things are going right and make adjustments because it's all secret and a smaller and smaller group of people get to sort of weigh in on, on, uh, on that question. And then what that means in terms of um, uh, spending, that's another lesson, uh, you know, I would argue of, of secrecy is that spending can go just hog wild. And if you look at the last big project that I did for the Post called Top Secret America, we tried to look at, you know, what have we wrought from this, um, from in this last decade. And, and just to give you a couple figures, you know, we, we came up with uh, 2,000 companies doing work at the top secret level for the government on counterterrorism, not everything, but just on counterterrorism and about 1,200 agencies doing that same thing. And one of my favorite symbols of this growth of, of counterterrorism uh, bureaucracy, really, is uh, the new, big new agency that was set up after 9-11, the Director of National Intelligence, um, which I had the wonderful um, occasion to visit a couple times during the reporting of this. And, uh, and, I, had been, and I had before, too, but to me, it when I started looking at, you know, how am I going to explain how big this whole thing has gotten, uh, that building became such a great symbol because, for one, it's hidden. In other words, it's undisclosed, so you, you, can't, you can't easily find out what it is. But if you go, like we did in the wintertime, and, you know, around the dentist's office that's right nearby, you can take a great, you can have a great look at the building. And... And then if you go and find the blueprints from the contractor who built the building, you can figure out the number of square feet, which is 500,000, I believe. And then every time I went there, I'd go and peruse the parking lot and count the parking spaces so I could, again, try to get some sense of how many people worked there because they wouldn't tell me. 
And lo and behold, you know, it's, it's like five Walmarts stacked on top of each other. And that for a, a, an agency that everyone outside of the agency, and I'm not kidding everyone in the intelligence world and the military that interacted with it, always criticized as, you know, sort of Congress put this thing on top of us, they, their mission is really unclear, you know, what are they doing in there, can you please tell me? That, and that, that continues to, to today. Um, on, our, on the press side, you know, what happens after 9-11 too is that the tension that, uh, so what does secrecy do to the, to the media? The tension that is, is often there with the media and the government, um, which I would argue should be there, not in a, not in a uh, unprofessional way and not in a, um, you know, mean way or an aggressive way, but a tension that the framers of the Constitution meant to have there, that tension just gets much worse. And to the point where um, the government is actively trying to intimidate the media into not reporting things that they're doing, um, calling everything sort of national security you know, national security damage uh, if you do report on these things, and, and having a good effect. I mean, having an effect that they might want because um, not only is it a lot harder to write about these things because they're they're purposely not easy to find out, but um, but now you know your patriotism is called into question if you if you do, and then that gets extended to the what I would call administration surrogates on the cable television shows and op-ed pieces, and so there's a big drumbeat about um, how evil the media is because they're revealing secrets um, and. You know, it's par for the course, but when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel like that. And uh, and then you add to that the fact that on 9-11 and for the next maybe year after that, literally a handful of reporters who are working on um, intelligence matters. So, and that hasn't gotten better. It's probably gotten worse in, in the sense that uh, so many people have cut staff. But you really have, you know, fewer than a dozen reporters who know a little bit about the intelligence world trying to figure out, you know, what the heck is going on. Um, but you do have, and what I think is really important here for those of you who are interested in journalism or even understanding it, is uh, those people who've developed the skill of, it sounds very simplistic, reporting rather than <laughs> you know, the platform, uh, do the best. And it takes me back to the fundamentals of, you know, what we do versus what we are known as now, which is, you know, our fundamental is to unearth new facts. It's not to repeat what someone else has said in some different format with a groovy, you know, new interactive map. Our mission is to really find out what the government's doing. And that requires a skill that you don't learn uh, behind a camera or online. You only learn it through interacting with people 
over and over again and learning how to deal with you know people who have sensitive information and learning how to read what the government is doing and figure out how you're going to get around their obstacles um, and yes it also includes you know figuring out um, how to unearth what I like to call the government's digital exhaust you know the as the secrecy has blossomed um, and the and the online ability and the government's uh, dependence on on the internet and other online products to just communicate with itself uh, that has left a trail for journalists to to exploit really to find new information to find new leads and my favorite example of that and then I'll quickly wrap up here is um, some of the stuff that we did for Top Secret America uh, my favorite one is using the ultra-secret website monster.com <laughs> to figure out um, what kind of jobs the government is is uh, is soliciting and to use and to read those carefully and to figure out you know you could actually over time plot the kind of linguists that it was looking at you know why all of a sudden is there this huge increase in the number of Farsi speakers that it needs SIGINT uh, people using you know they'll put uh, code names on the on some of these job announcements so um, just uh, I wanted to end by saying you know I think there's sort of like a chemistry of secrecy it's kind of it's natural it's natural laws and the, I have three items here four items one is that no, um, one is that nothing secret remains on course that because not enough people are debating this within a given, let's just say, within the government that is secret, things veer off course. And the best example of that is um, uh, the, the prisoners who were the wrongful imprisonment of people who were not terrorists, but who the CIA young officers a lot of times in the field um, would pick up, but also Abu Ghraib, where um, the rules become so loose in a sense. The CIA and, and DOD are kind of rubbing together in ways that they usually don't. And things eventually happen even on the DOD side that should never have happened, in part because this whole thing is just so locked down. The second one is that people inside eventually do um, uh, do the wrong thing um, in part because if they need to stand up to a majority view they're they're kind of doing it by themselves they don't have the pressure from an outside debate and my favorite example of that is is the intelligence community's um, assessment of Iraq's WMD which if you really deconstruct I think the people who were the dissenters got overridden by those who just jumped on the bandwagon at some point. Uh, and I think part of the reason it was so hard for the dissenting opinions to get through is because it was a shrinking universe that was even able to debate those subjects. Third is that you know money will increase and waste will increase with secrecy. And the fourth is nothing big and controversial ever remains secret. So 
you know, the fact that we all know all of this now is really remarkable, given that it was a covert is a covert action that have that has a lot of security around it, that uses, you know, every tradecraft that the agency and others know in order to stay secret, and yet we know so much about this. You know, we have learned almost every facet of it, and now there are even court cases that our allies have brought against uh, <clears throat> us, in Italy, for example, which have even greater, have even uh, released more information about, you know, the particulars of tradecraft. So nothing remains secret, and I'll stop right there. Let me ask a couple of quick questions, then we'll open it up. One, in a way, uh, what happened today with Kurt Eichenwald suggests that we don't know how much we don't know. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, do we really feel like we do know? Or are we, you know, blinkered by the idea that, uh, that uh, we know more than we think we do? Well, it's like peeling back the onion. I kind of feel like I'll move on now because we do know the broad outlines and we know actually a lot of the details of the broad outlines. So, you know, I think all these things, when, when historians 10, 15 years from now, you know, keep at this, they're going to find new details. Uh, uh, and, and yes, those will add to the history of it, but, but generally I think that we... We do have the broad parameters of what happened. And, and Dana, can you give us an example in your own career of information that uh, you elected not to report for reasons that you came to believe it should remain a secret? Yeah, the, the best one is the secret prison story. Um, so in 05, uh, after, you know, I would say an accumulation of a couple of years of reporting, um, I did a story that really was supposed to give the broad context of, you know, what happened, what did they set up in terms of the prisons, why did they choose to do that, and, you know, where are they, and how many people have gone through them, and what's the controversy over it, all, all of this. So in reporting that, we came, uh, I came to know the places where the prisons were, which as a reporter, you know, it's just wow, I got, you know, you got to that point. So I was very excited uh, about that. Uh, it wasn't easy. It was really hard. Um, and then the decision to publish or what to publish is not mine. It's my editors. It's, in this case, the top editor who, uh, who then, what we did in that pro process, um, to make a long story short, is we ended up not publishing the names of those countries. But how we got from having them to not publishing them is an interesting, you know, backstory, which I'll just abbreviate here, but it goes something like this. First of all, every story that has to do with national security that you know has sensitive and classified information, my obligation is to call up the agency involved and to tell them everything that's in the story, and that's what I did with the CIA at some point. And the purpose of that is so that they can, if they want, try to dissuade me, try to dissuade the Post in this case, from uh, publishing everything. So we, we don't have prior censorship. We're not like Israel or Britain yet. And, uh, and so there's no better way to do that. You cannot ask the media, you know, or 
It is self-censorship. That involves a discussion that's mature on both sides, knowing that you have different roles, but neither one of you wants to damage national security. Um, and so that's what happened. So I called the CIA, gave them everything in the story. They know I'm doing that in order to start this dialogue. And so the dialogue went from public affairs person up through the directorate of operations up to the head of the agency, each time them first at first communicating with me, but then communicating with the larger me, which is my editors. And all the while, we coming back to the office and having these amazing conversations about the pros and cons of, because of, they weren't saying, you know, don't publish the names, they were saying don't publish anything. And, uh, you know, it ranged everything from, uh, you know, maybe we should really water down this story to how can we take anything out and not feel complicit in something that would be illegal in the countries that were involved in this and everything in between. And so finally, the White House called and the president had an audience um, with uh, and his entire national security team had, had our <coughs> editors in and uh, had pretty much the same argument to make, the main one being if you do this, then our allies won't, won't trust us with secrets, and so they'll stop cooperating. And then the secondary one is there might be some threat, terrorist threat to these countries, although that one got made sometimes and not made other times. So in the end, Len Downey, one person, uh, with no pressure from the publisher, uh, decided that we we won't publish the names. And so the thinking was, you go, since nobody's quoted in the story, <laughs> why are you going to believe me? I have, so what, the, so you give as much detail as you can up to the point where you can assess the best you can that you don't put anything in danger. Uh, so we decided we won't put the names in, but we'll say Eastern Europe, which to me was important because Eastern Europe had been trying to throw off the power and independence of his, its intelligence services since the end of the Cold War, and one of our stated policies was to be in support of that, and yet, you know, here we were asking those people in particular, uh, not their political people, but their intelligence services to help us do this thing that would be illegal in all of their countries. So that's what we eventually did, and then we, we explained to readers, because we wanted to be as clear as possible what the thinking was and what the administration thinking was. Um, so, and that, that happens um, on hopefully every story in which there's um, those sorts of things at stake. And most of the people who work on these issues are pretty senior and, you know, and are used to this. But sometimes you get a government person who's never done it before and, and they just don't take, I've had my favorite, this is my favorite story. So one time we, in looking at the rendition flights, we, um, uh, we discovered that, um, that the company, the, the false company had, um, one thing led to another. Public records that I got up here led to uh, online. Our researcher could come up with the mailboxes of 250 people who ended up being like cover names for the agency. And we brought this to the agency saying, you know, we've got these five post offices in post box stations in Northern Virginia. 
that have together 250 names of your people or you know pseudonyms so we're trying to write this story we want to have this diagram what do you think and it was just Porter Goss's um, Porter Goss had just come come as director his public affairs people were very inexperienced working these issues and they didn't even know really who they should go talk to so when that happened, they came back the next day and said, well, we have no comment. And I'm thinking to myself, you mean you're not even going to ask me not to put the names in the paper, not to put the post office locations or box numbers? But no, they didn't. And it's not my role to say, aren't you going to ask me X? <laughs> <laughs> so we did X anyway. I mean, we didn't put much detail in except, you know, the number of of uh, names and five post office boxes in Northern Virginia and that sort of thing. But so it's to say that both sides need to be experienced in this, and the government really does still need help in in uh, making their own case. I'm going to open it up to questions, but we're going to start with students from the Kennedy School. If you're a student, just raise your hand, and uh, you'll get your first crack. Hmm. Yes. Hi, David hey. Garfunkel. First, just started a week ago, so oh, really, okay. really excited to have you here. Um, I guess my question sort of follows on what you were just talking about, which is this balancing act between the media and the government. And I guess I would, I would say that the government is probably the least objective determiner of, of what constitutes national security hmm. and, and what doesn't. And if the media is, is sort of trying to bring, to fight against secrecy, I was wondering uh, um, how, you, how you balance that. It sort of surprised me to hear that you go to the agencies and say, here's the information we have. What do you not want us to do? You, yeah. you have sort of debate. I was wondering. Right. Well, see, we do that not because, um, you know, we're going to just lay down and say, okay, whatever you say. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. It's really because they hold all the cards in terms of the information. I mean, I don't know. Some things are obvious, what, what, is, what would be damaging, and some things really are not obvious. And, and chances are, you know, someone there in the government knows why certain things are sensitive. They know the backstory. And I don't want to assume things, so I want to try to get them to tell me the most they can in order for us to make a good decision because it's still us making a decision. Mm -hmm. So really, in the in this realm, it, it's unlike any other realm. You really can't um, assume that you know everything, you know, or that you know all the factors that you should even be considering. So one of the things that I did in this case, for sure, but also in uh, in in other cases after that and before that, is I sort of would get um, I would cultivate what I would call my consigliaries, you know, my people who were former intel people, but who appreciated and understood what the media did and understood the tension. And I would ask them for advice, um, you know, trying to filter what their prejudices might be, but also, so in this case, one of the most fascinating things that I really did come to believe was you know, this argument that our allies are gonna stop trusting us and not sharing information is a powerful one on its face. But frankly, our interests against counterterrorism is much stronger than a temporary, because it usually is temporary, uh, pissing match, if you you know, between two countries, and that's really 
uh, I mean, history shows that to be true. If even Italy, who's prosecuting the United States, Italy also sits in a counterterrorism center with the United States and shares information. I mean, it has a bigger interest in uh, in prosecuting counterterrorism. And, and, and people around the world know that the United States, the CIA in particular, but the NSA, National Security Agency, I mean, we have the best, deepest, and most global uh, information. So, you know, most of those countries still want our help. Students. Yes. Uh, Andy Butterfield, uh, and it's an honor to be able to thank you in person, uh, I think, uh, for the, uh, as a Afghan war planner at CENTCOM, huh. and then an Iraq war veteran, and all the men and women that got injured, uh, and, and all the good you did. And, uh, thank you. What the government wouldn't do for itself, as, as David said, uh, helping the wounded warriors have a place to come back. Uh, they deserve it, really. Hmm. Those of you who might not understand, this is uh, the Walter Reed Hospital story that was a hugely important one for calling attention to the plight of veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks, Alex. Exactly. Um, and then as a taxpayer and as a guy who would like Intel to work better and mm. timely and not cost us generations of debt and all, all the for a hundred reasons, thank you for all, all those efforts there. And, uh, uh, proud of my service uh, in the government, but then embarrassed that we're not better at it. So it's a policing ourselves. Mm. And I, I could give some anecdotes. I think Eichenwald's on to something. I saw some Republica. I was at CENTCOM in summer of 2012, and we were trying to connect dots. And uh, and uh, so then I saw some response attack dogs. Kind of, as you said, it probably doesn't feel good when it's happening. Uh, it's uh -huh. usual, but tearing him down, calling him a bad American. Yeah. For, for trying to get to the truth, it'll come out. And some of the stuff I know is probably still classified and probably overclassified. I, I, I think a lot, of, you surprised me when you said everything's on monster.com, so it's vastly under underclassified. Right. And so much is overclassified. And I think, uh, I mean, I had classification authority before I knew what it was. Could you take a guy like me? I was a helicopter pilot. He pulled me out of a cockpit, put me at Central Command. And, Give me classification story, I'm not really sure. Do you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> Thrilled to be here. Sorry about that. Um, uh, so how does the government, uh, thank you, Alex, I need to get uh, on track. How does the government improve its proven inability to really correct itself mm. or police itself? I mean, we had this very expensive thing, the GAO, there to right. be doing that, IG's internal commands, but not doing that. Right. Do we just dismantle all that and, and give the press <coughs> subsidies to do it for us? Do yes. But <laughs> <laughs> does the government, uh, how well, does the government so, um, I really think it gets better from pressure. You know, it's just, it's just like a force of nature too. And, and, you know, part of that, part of the problem has been Congress, the, you know, third leg of the stool has been very weak and scared and intimidated to take on anything that has the word intelligence or war and terror related to it. And so that that's a big issue. Um, you scared because well, everyone be a challenge on being weak on that right, security and weak or it. unpatriotic. Um, and I think that the the real story beyond the waste and and proliferation is that some things in here work phenomenally now, and those are the things that need to be funded. Uh, and some things are not worth funding, and those things need to drop to drop away. So, you know, having that discussion is important. 
having that discussion within the government and then to the public is important. I think in an overarching way, secrecy has impeded the government's um, ability or desire to communicate to the American people what the level of threat still is. And if they don't do that, they will never be able to get to the place in which they say, well, maybe we don't need as much of that, and maybe we need a little bit more of that. Because you will always get dinged for, it's the easiest thing to get criticized for. And every both parties are watching. They're you know set to pounce on anybody who's going to cut back anything. Uh, and they can get away with it because, you know, well, we don't know. The public doesn't know. It all sounds scary if you want to cut some money out of, you know, whatever. Um, so, so I think the first step to making improvements is, is for the government, and I see this happening a little bit right now, um, to talk more realistically about the threat. You know, where is al-Qaeda now? I mean, how many are there? There aren't many left. <laughs> okay, that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of other affiliates that have popped up, but boy, do they know where they are. I mean, compared to 9-11, you know, groups are on this. J JSOC, the CIA, uh, that's probably the two. <laughs> Students. Yes. Uh, just to follow up on that, I'm Tim Barrett, I'm also at the Kennedy School. Thank you for being here. Where, where do you see, because you're obviously a Washington insider now, where do you see <laughs> where where do you see room for cuts? What do you think is working? You mentioned JSOC and the agency. What do you think is well, not working? Where do we trim the fat post Bin Laden um, and with the new election? Yeah, if you look, if you just want to talk, um, you know what I would call sort of on the more tactical level, because I think the strategic level is is a whole other kettle of fish where you have to confront things like the weakness and of the State Department and other non-military. Uh, actors, so I'll set that aside, because that's really hard um, to change. It's not hard to identify what needs to be done, but to change. So I think on the um, you know, more tactical level or short-term level, uh, if you look at the um, bin Laden raid and you kind of deconstruct it and reverse engineer it, you'll see the groups that have been most effective. So it's not just the people that went in to shoot, uh, but it's also all the intel collection that went on and who did it. You have at the agency, you know, not only was it the agency, but it was a very focused group in the agency who had a very specific mission that they kept on for years. The opposite gets you nowhere, which is, my favorite, is INSCOM, the Intelligence and Security Command, which is the U.S. Army, Army's intelligence command that almost nobody outside of the armed forces or the Army knows about, but it's gigantic. Uh, largely, it's supposed to do counterintelligence and sort of insider threats with the Army, but that's hard to do for all sorts of politically sensitive reasons. Uh, and also just hard to do. So instead, they did what you could get money for and what everybody else was doing, follow the terrorism soccer ball. And so they reinvented the wheel. Let's figure out you know, how many terrorists are in the United States, where are the groups? Well, the FBI is doing that, but they got money to do it because nobody said no in the beginning. And once you start the money ball, you know, again, you, it's hard to cut. So things like that, um, and there are hundreds of things like that 
should be, I think, you know, looked at, evaluated, and done away with so that you can focus on what works. And people know what works now. On 60 Minutes this past week, they devoted the whole program to the to the raid, and the hero of that account was this woman. Right. Do, do people in Washington in your business know who that is? or I mean, is that a secret that will probably eventually come out or no? Well, I don't think it will come out because she's, you know, in the agency. You mean her name? Her name and the yeah. story of what she did. Uh, the story of what she did, I hope, does come out because it does speak to this question of what works. And, to, and what works is people who are experts in what they do are focused on what they do and don't have a broad, loose mandate. Well, this guy, you know, yeah. said that she was 100% correct in right. everything she told them, which is really quite an endorsement for the CIA, I would think. They would, yeah. good news tends to sort of get reported sometimes. Yeah, no, think, it's uh, hard though. I mean, I've asked a million times if I could, you know, write about her or the unit or, you know, and they, and, but I think somebody, eventually they will do it. Um, but again, the, the lesson to me is focus, 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 and not a broad sweeping thing. We're so beyond that. And beyond, behind her was this incredible thing that got built up both within the agency, JSOC, and among, you know, the other special forces and perhaps some conventional, I'm less familiar with them, which is the whole intelligence uh, exploitation um, thing that happened, you know, electronics, uh, not so much interrogations, but uh, how you can <coughs> find things when you go someplace, um, exploit them on the scene, feed them into giant databases, those will tell you where things, you know, where to go. That didn't really exist um, in such, in the way that it exists now, and, and that has made a huge difference in uh, and so things that contribute to that working, uh, even to the point of, you know, the National Security Agency being able to key in on things and phone numbers and where those phones are located, you know, all that stuff. And wouldn't that all be a product of top secret America? Yes, no, uh, at, definitely. At one sliver of it? Absolutely. And I think that's what, in the, you know, final chapters here, you know, what work shouldn't be dismantled. That should be where people, you know, what people fund. You and then you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And here's the book, by the way. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. I'm an email fellow. My name is Suad McKenneth. I, um, uh, there's a story that we worked on at the New, the New York Times. You mentioned the secret detention centers and the innocent cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure you remember the Al Masri case. Because right. Because story I worked on five months, and we broke it. And then I think you picked it up as well. And I was wondering what kind of reactions you had from uh, the government. The other thing uh, that I wanted to ask you is I found quite interesting um, what you said about how you check in with the agencies first before you publish something. And this kind of, some, I'm sorry to say it, but self-censorship is for me a little bit shocking to hear uh, that hmm. you're doing this all the time. Because, you know, I'm someone, I'm not American, I uh, grew up in Germany, I signed up for, for this kind of journalism because of Bob Woodward and uh, Bernstein. And um, I'm asking myself, uh, listening to all this now, 
how can we then point at other states and say that there is no freedom of speech and no freedom of press? Mm -hmm. if, you know, U.S. journalists right. are basically doing self-censorship for what reason ever. Well, I think you probably misinterpreted what I said, because um, we we don't. Let's see if I could find a, an example that's so black and white. Okay, let's say you're a reporter. I mean, the New York Times is the same thing, by the way. Let and, and they should, and they all should. Um, and the reason is they have the last say. So no one in the government is telling me, telling my publisher what they cannot write. I mean, you got to be. That's num that's clear. What I'm doing is seeking information like I would on any other subject. So let's say here's a here's my here's the easiest example to understand, which is you're with the military somewhere, you know, embedded somewhere, or you're in Washington, and you learn that you know tomorrow a bunch of troops are going to go into a place that they've never been before, a village. And they're going because they think a terrorist is there. So now you have information that's, you know, interesting. Maybe there's like a school next to the target. So it's going to be tricky. There could be civilian casualties. Are you going to report on that before? Knowing that, or are you going to report on, you know, knowing that people could get hurt? Knowing that you're going to nix the operation? I mean, that's the black and white case. So I think you've mischaracterized what it is we do and why we do it. I think what's more analogous is what the New York Times did with the Assange information. They didn't just publish it. They examined it, they sifted through it, but before they published something as potentially sensitive as that, they went to the agencies involved, David Sanger and all that. That's I was at the New York Times too and I'm not speaking on behalf of the New York no, Times. No, no, I'm just I'm saying just that they of my own story yeah. Okay, well would you think that they were wrong to do that? Do you think the Times was wrong to go to the government agencies with their Assange report? I was not involved in that, so I have, you know, I can, I'm happy to share okay. uh, in a different discussion my point of view, but I was not involved. I can only talk about, uh, I did a lot on secret detentions as well. For the yeah, and, and, the, you and know, the you same know, process, story, the same but, process occurs never, there. I can tell you for sure from my, I, as a person, never got into the same uh, situation that you got into. If my colleagues in Washington have different, you know, have a different kind of experience, I don't know about that. But I, uh, I work a lot in, in the Middle East. I work a lot on um, agency stuff, on secret detentions. And uh, trust me, we, we put, I put the name of Macedonia and other countries in my reporting. And we, I mean, I always resist it. Okay. That, you, sir. Um, I would just say uh, I, I come from one of the organizations you talk about, I'm an Army officer. Um, and just to put some things in context, I'm a consumer of intelligence place, person who produces it. And the demand on them, and if you look at the, the failures, and they were that, let's just call it what it was, going back, and what people were saying we should have been doing with Al-Qaeda in the mm. late 90s forward, the intelligence world is under incredible stress every day. <clears throat> so to characterize anything one way of this person's being shut down, this is that, in the context, I don't think it's accurate. There are great people who are trying to do great things, and it's hard. It's just very hard. Um, as far as protecting people's names, um, I mean, it's a joke now within all of our communities of when an article comes out, you know, hey, I heard you had uh, lunch yesterday with Dana Priest. What's, what's up with that? You know, I mean, it's just a joke kind of. Yeah. So people know if the word's going to get out. And people are pretty hmm. comfortable with it, to be honest with you. Um, they're they're not is, comfortable, do you say? Or? They are. I mean, uh -huh. It's, it's going to, you know it's going to come out. 
I mean, the Bin Laden raid, you knew, hey, this is going to be, this is a big event. This is fast. Yeah. It's going to be out. People make fun, you know, SEAL Team 6, you buy the t-shirt to send them to your buddies. Um, so it's probably very detrimental to them in the long run. Mm -hmm. They have huge issues um, because it's out there. Um, how effective are they going to be in the future? Um, so they, they have a bunch of issues they're going to have to figure out from all of that. Um, <clears throat> so having said that, there, there is other sides. So if I were that, you know, individual, whoever that is, I'm going to let, let that go, I would not want my name out there for my family's sake. Right. So there, there's other stuff. Al-Qaeda, candidly, is not that good. Otherwise, they would have been attacking people in D.C. on subways right. a long time ago. So I don't want to make more out of it. That is a little bit higher level, so there may be some concerns there. Um, so after my diatribe there, uh, the question is, you're basically an intelligence person. Mm -hmm. You do a very good job of getting these stories. And I don't think very many people talk to you candidly. I think you just kind of connect the dots. Maybe a couple people do. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure they do. On what percentage, how do you come up with your stories? This much, I just do a bunch of fact checking because it's all out on the internet and people in a rush to do the right thing, putting jobs on monster.com, you can't hide where planes fly ultimately. How, how much do you get off of just open source, connecting dots or people talking to you? Well, I talk a lot to those people I don't talk to that you were saying. I mean, this book was the first time that, um, that we used the internet in that way. And really, it, it's only, it was only to put uh, numbers to things because the big challenge here was I could feel that this thing had grown, but how are you going to show it to somebody? So we needed to do some quantifying and empiricalizing of things that um, in, in order to you know prove the point so that's why we created the database which actually Bill Arkin <coughs> created and he used you know monster.com to do that but the book itself and all the scenarios in the book and the stories in the book are all from people and um, uh, so I don't use open, you know, much stuff on the internet <laughs> to write stories about intelligence because there's nothing interesting out there on it yet. Um, yes, sir, over here. I'm Yaakov Katz, I'm also a Neiman Fellow, and I'm actually a reporter in Israel, and I cover military affairs and national security as well. So I face uh, government or military-imposed right. censorship on any article that pertains to national security. And my question to you about the self-censorship kind of issue is um, has there ever been a thought maybe at the Washington Post, maybe together with other large newspapers like the New York Times, maybe set a, a set of ground rules? For example, like what this gentleman said before, names, for example, to always take out. Or as you mentioned, as an example, uh, on the eve of an operation, I'm not going to write that the US troops are going to tomorrow uh, invade so-and-so. In other words, to set those rules as ground rules and then not to have to contact agencies and say, okay, this is what I'm writing, what do you think? But you have these, this basic set with what you work with on a daily basis. You could come up with some ground rules that, you know, the industry is like a bunch of cats, you know. Nobody's going to agree to rules that cover every circumstance all the time because what if 
those troops were going to invade, uh, like, France tomorrow. <laughs> or, you know, do something crazy. Let's say, what if you found Cuba. out? Cuba. What if you no, found out? No, let's say hypothetically, but you found out America was about to do a preemptive attack on Iran. That would be a hard question. I mean, I don't have an answer for that right now. I mean, that... That right. A, that's a fucking question. But 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 back to yours. You, so you could establish some uh, things that would be meant to educate reporters who don't normally deal with this and editors who don't normally, in which you could you could say that. But you can't because every circumstance is different. You can't have you can't have you know these rules be ironclad. But on on the identities even. And to your question, too. So there is a law that covers CIA, covered people who are undercover or have cover at the CIA. It's, it's illegal, actually. It's one of the, like, four things that's illegal to publish, to knowingly publish their name. And that's where the Valerie Plame case came in. And that's for a whole host of reasons that um, are, very, to, in my mind, very legitimate. Um, but military people have traditionally put their names in the paper. When, after not, in part because, again, why should a reader trust me? I mean, they need to, I'm, I need to have people in the, in the stories doing whatever they're doing because that's real and it gives authenticity to a story. And so right after 9-11, there was um, the military, DOD said no names and, and especially, you know, special forces no names and that, that fell away after a while. I mean, it was there because people were worried about security, but there hasn't been any incidents of, you know, things here. And so people decided that really wasn't a threat, and names are in the paper all the time having to do with military people, but it's still within, uh, it's like, it's, it's still their call. You know, if I'm going to use and talk to them and they say, I'll only talk to you if you don't put my name in, then I have to respect that or I don't talk to them. I'm always trying to get people to use their name because I want readers to know that it's real. So that, that whole thing has changed and it really is on a case-by-case -case basis and you need to, you know, you need to, um, to try as a reporter to get as much as you can in the paper but respect why people wouldn't want to. Have yes. name in. And then Chris. I have two questions. So first, all these people that don't talk to you, what what do you think their motivation is and how do they get your number? Uh, and <laughs> second, a little more broadly, I'm curious what your reaction is to people. There's in um, Jack Goldsmith, for example, who's at the law school, says, Don't worry about all this accretion of executive power because we've got the press. Right. You know, that's one of his right it's okay. And I wonder, do you like resent that because your job is so hard or do you kind of think that's true because you do your job so well? Um, uh, well, first on Jack's book and his thesis, you know, I do think that he has something important to say. I think it's over, over exaggerated the, the, his optimism about executive power. Because when you look at how this started, you know, and it, it was a real fight, and uh, it was not clear that, you know, the truth would win out, if you want to say it that way, that, you know, that things would be kind of righted in all this, when the scales got tipped towards the executive for all these reasons, and secrecy was a big part of that, it was not clear that it would ever get tipped back. And really, it has to do with a handful of 
sort of idiosyncratic individuals and their institutions and, you know, lawyers, journalists, human rights investigators, and what they were able to find out and able to publish. And, you know, it wasn't a system in that sense that guaranteed that that would happen. And so, um, you know, but it did happen. And so that's where I think it's right to examine that whole thing because in the largest scheme of things, we are that fourth branch that has a reason to exist in the balancing of democracy and the weighing of security versus, um, you know, right to know and, and security and, and secrecy versus public input on these issues which is just fundamental and and the tension needs to be there because you know you don't want government to be I mean I would in a way handing out secrets that should be secret on the other hand I should be enabled to try to get them and the government has no responsibility to give them to me but it shouldn't be easy to put me in jail um, because I'm trying, because, and that's how mud, the system was designed kind of to be murky and muddy and messy, bec but it's necessary that all four of those branches play some kind of role. And then on the motivation. So the motivation of people in the intel world is not unlike what it is in the DOD world or other areas, with some exceptions. And why, so why do people just generally talk to reporters about things they're not supposed to talk about? It goes from everywhere from people who love to gossip and they just love to gossip. It's a little less in the intel world, uh, a lot less. Um, to rivalries for money and power, that is, you know, tried and true why every bureaucracy, you know, when I first got on the DOD beat on defense and learned that there were these huge differences between the services. <laughs> And the Army, you know, if they thought the Navy was getting equipment that they didn't really need, they made sure to know everything about it, and that, that was a good source for learning what the, where the, the waste in the Navy was. It's kind, I mean, again, it's somewhat, but more constrained. And then when you got, finally, when you got a, a when you have something like these operations that were so different and unconventional and um, and and really concentrated the power of the executive, you're going to have dissent. And because the other branches weren't functioning right, mainly Congress, a lot of people surmised that, um, that people went to those branches and didn't get any resolution. But I also have to say, no one came to me. You know, people don't call you up and say, hey, you want to hear a secret? <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. It, it's the opposite. You know, you hear one little thing and then you kind of... We're running out of time, so I would ask the questions to be short. Chris, and then you. And the answers be short. <laughs> um, quickly on the question, you used the word reporting, and you also pointed out the kind of David and Goliath aspect of a dozen reporters against um, mm. this large and growing secrecy, bureaucracy, intelligence. Looking toward the future, um, things are not at the moment getting better in, in the news organizations. How are you seeing a new generation of reporters like yourself coming along? How mm -hmm. are, are institutions, the Washington Post, 
cultivating people, or how do we make sure that we've got a well, minimum I, of people uh, doing reporting yeah. and not opinionating? I don't think it's as gloomy as you know it looked five years ago. The pendulum, I think, has started to swing back. Big newspapers believe that their uh, their added advantage is in areas that other people don't cover and can't cover, which is national security, among other things. But that's central. And um, you know, I think that some young people, <coughs> having seen what happened in the last decade, might be drawn to national security reporting, knowing that it can make a difference, you know, knowing that it can do things that the government's not going to do on its own and that bloggers uh, aren't going to do for them either. I mean, nobody knew about this whole thing until, you know, it started coming out through the media. And so that, it's hard to remember that now because it's all out there, <laughs> but there was a time when that certainly was true. And so I'm hoping, because I was talking with Alex and others about, you know, the new media means to a lot of people advocacy journalism, and which to their mind equates to, you know, changing and bettering the world. And I would say advocacy journalism by its nature is weak because it is already showing its impartiality and that it's really basic, you know, fundamental good investigative journalism that, you know, that can do that. Yes, sir. I was curious. Um, thesis that this culture of secrecy has expanded since 9 11, or at least it was for a while. I was curious if you feel that that was a deliberate effort to avoid a debate from the public, or if it was simply just an overreaction operations, and do you feel that it's a mesh in the bureaucracy, or if it's changed across administration? I think that it was both. It was in the beginning, it was, you know, panic. Let's do what we need to do. Let's make it secret so we don't have to, whatever, talk to anybody. And I also think because it was so controversial, it, I mean, it was kept from members of the Intel Committee for a long time. In my mind, I kind of put the first six months after 9-11 in its own category because really, I mean, people were so worried about a next attack. They were just panicked and doing what they thought needed to be done. But after that, and certainly now when the Intel is so much better, none of that's excusable anymore. So, um, so I do think that uh, you know, needs to be uh, reassessed, and 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 people need to dig in a lot, a lot more, and including into you know what needs to remain secret. If they haven't learned, and I don't think everybody has, but one of the lessons from WikiLeaks is um, that the government can't keep everything secret. That it is not keeping everything secret that it thinks it is, and if you have classified so much you are going to make mistakes about how you keep you know it all secret and so i've heard in counterintelligence people whose job it is to make sure these things don't leak out say you know what we really need to do is reevaluate and really decide what we need to keep secret and focus on keeping that secret um because i would i would argue that even when you look at the definition of top secret, something that would get out would gravely damage the national security. When that was first written, technology didn't change that much. So they were mainly thinking about, you know, the technological advantages we had in our defense industry. And so things that, you know, we had invented, uh, if those got out, the enemy would know how to do the same thing. But now, first of all, technology changes so quickly, we adapt so quickly, 
uh, that there are, you know, those those um, definitions are antiquated because what damages national security from from a technological point of view is is I would argue much smaller. I mean, I've heard other people argue this, and uh, so. I'm sorry to say we're out of time. Yeah. I, Dana, thank you so much. It was great. Thank you.